This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. This week's episode is quite literally mind-blowing. As per usual, the Power Athlete crew brings you the latest research from experts in the field in order to empower your performance. Dr. David Perlmutter joins us to talk about the relationship between brain function and nutrition. He's the author of several books, including Grain Brain and Brain Maker, which help us, the average Jamoke, understand the correlation between food and the brain. Curious as to how gluten affects the hamster on a wheel that is your mind? Dr. Girlmutter unravels the mystery linkage between mouth, gut, and dome. Also, everyone wants to know what, when, and how much to consume to keep performance at optimal levels. Hear about the thousands of years of practice that humans have had in identifying tasty foods. What was once a survival mechanism to choose nutrient-dense fruits has now turned into an ever-available and insatiable appetite for the almighty sugar, quite arguably one of the biggest human health downfalls of the modern age. One thing is certain, Dr. Perlmutter will be providing more than enough food for thought to chew on. You like that? This is episode 139. Yo, Power Athlete Nation, welcome to the premier podcast in strength and conditioning, Power Athlete Radio. This is Denny, joining me today is John Luke and Tex, and our guest is Dr. David Perlmutter. Dr. Perlmutter, sorry, Dr. Perlmutter serves as the Associate Professor at the University of Miami School of Medicine. He's a board-certified neurologist and fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He's brought to the public an awareness and understanding that challenging brain problems, including things like Alzheimer's and dementia and depression, may be prevented with the lifestyle uh, lifestyle changes, including like a gluten-free, low-carb, high-fat diet. And lately, we've been pushing out a bunch of uh, crucial information on like the ketogenic diet, and we're excited to have him on. So, Dr. Perlmutter, thank you for taking the time to talk some shop with us. <laughs> well, great. I'm always happy to talk shop. Hey, Doc, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate, um, you know, you taking the time to get in and talk to us and, more importantly, talk to the, you know, the greater listening audience. Uh, you know, let's dive right in. Uh, can you give us a little bit of uh, your CV? I know Denny did it a little bit, but uh, what I'm more interested in is some of the books and really what you're doing presently in your research. Uh, I'd be delighted. So um, I've kind of taken neurology in a different direction uh, as a neurologist earlier on in my career. I became really fairly frustrated with what we did as brain specialists. We really pretty much uh, treated symptoms and never paid any attention to the disease and certainly not to what was causing the disease. You know, we would give pain medication for headaches and treat maybe the tremor and the stiffness of Parkinson's, but when it came to stroke, and head trauma and uh, degenerative conditions like Alzheimer's, we had, and indeed mainstream neurology still has nothing to offer to patients. So it became very clear a couple of decades ago 
that in fact lifestyle issues were hugely related to the brain. Most importantly, nutrition, but exercise as well, stress, sleep, etc. And I really dedicated myself at that point to learning as much as I could about these issues, these factors over which we have control. And that's really a big part of what this is all about, that we can learn about things and then leverage the knowledge to create a better brain that's more resistant to disease, more resistant to having issues once there's been trauma, etc. And I began studying, I, I began lecturing, I began writing, and uh, over the years I've published uh, seven books. Most recently, um, a book called Grain Brain, which is now in 27 countries. And uh, even more recently, a book called Brain Maker, that not only focuses on the role of nutrition in the brain, but even more importantly, looks at how our nutritional choices affect the bacteria that live within us, most importantly in the gut, and how they, the bacteria, regulate so many important processes that relate back to the brain. The focus of Grain Brain was low carb, low sugar, avoidance of gluten, and welcoming fat back to the table. And I think it's really, um, it's really kind of an amazing set of circumstances that allow all of us today to be doing this podcast on the very day that the U.S. government uh, has uh, launched its eighth version of the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. It happened this morning. And what is so incredible about these new guidelines is they're saying we should eat eggs, that dietary cholesterol is not relevant anymore to our health, and that fat needs to be welcomed back to the table. And it happened this morning. That's the United States Government Dietary Advisory Committee. So, Victory. Doc, I, I feel like we've been beating this war drum for the last seven years, talking about you can't equal the fat in your waist to the fat that you're eating, and uh, you know, I mean, it's pretty amazing. I mean, talk about the pushback, but I think we're also just the fact that they're coming up to uh, up to par with 60 years of research. I mean, well, I, yeah, you know, and it's not with all due respect, it's not just 60 years of research, but a high-fat, ketogenic, low-carb diet has allowed us to survive for the last two million years. So it's a pretty robust experiment that's gone on that has cultivated our genome, that has cultivated the right DNA to respond to that specific type of diet. Now suddenly, in the last blink of an eye, we're challenging our physiology with high levels of sugar and carbohydrates, with much less fat and much less fiber. And you know, then we wonder why we're seeing such an explosion of things like obesity and diabetes, autoimmune conditions and cancer, for, for those of us who are following the, histor the historical record and looking at you know, the most well-respected research being published today, the explosion of degenerative conditions is no surprise whatsoever, and in fact it was predicted. No, that's, um, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's one of those things where you know, and people listening to this podcast are kind of on the front lines a little bit in that they own gyms and they're, you know, constantly in a situation where they're dealing with people that are coming in. And I know I used to, you know, for uh, you know, five, six years, owned a commercial gym after I retired from the NFL and coming in and talking to people or even, you know, traveling out and lecturing and, you know, traveling the world teaching how uneducated people uh, are really about diet. And you start talking about, you know, uh, you know, ketosis or ketones, or you talk about, uh, you know, elevated fat, high, you know, high carbohydrate, uh, you know, di diets and the dangers of it. And it's almost as if you're, you know, 
insulting their parents or insulting somebody or, or you know, talking about religion. And I, it's it's amazing to think that for the most part, people believe that the you know that the U.S. government, who's prescribing a lot of these things, would never make a mistake, and all this stuff's research based, and that you know people like us and you know people like yourself are quacks, and how dare you? And there's some personal agenda that you're pushing forward by making these recommendations. And I'm sure, Doc, you you get the you know having your books and just seeing some of the backlash that you've received. It's pretty um, it's amazing when some when people are coming at you that venomously. You know, I have to say that if they weren't coming uh, and challenging me, then I'm not working hard enough because, um, you know, if you're just uh, parroting the status quo, uh, there won't be any progress. If we're all singing the same song, there won't be any harmony. So we've got to push it a little bit, and that's how you move the ball down the field. That's how you make progress is by by doing things that are a little bit different. That's how we move ahead. And you know, that's been, been sort of my uh, method over the years is really trying to connect the dots and then leveraging that information uh, in, in terms of giving the public that information. And again, you know, when, when these dietary guidelines were announced this morning, it, it's sort of, yeah, you know, you, you just take a step back and say, yeah, you got it. I mean, we only started talking about that two decades ago and how nice that <laughs> the dietary, dietary guidelines are now being announced, but that's okay. I mean... Sure, there's push, pushback, but people tend to be down on what they're not up on. And I would say that that's our mission, is to bring people up to speed. And results really speak volume in terms of uh, people wanting to get their arms around staying with the program. You know, I generally say to people, give me two weeks. Do what I, I'm asking you to do for a couple of weeks. We'll get back together at that point. Let's see how you're doing. And Suddenly, people are sleeping better. Their, men their mental clarity returns. Their energy returns. Their muscle aches are better, and you know they're cognitively improved. Even after a couple of weeks, that's a strong level of encouragement for them to stay on whatever it is you recommend. Um, I've been uh, I've actually read Grain Brain long before we uh, reached out to you, and um, I, I know your guy was going to send us over a copy, but you know, having already gone through it, can you talk a little bit about the mechanism for gluten in terms of deteriorating the brain? I mean, almost similar to like the leaky gut effect. Uh, well, know, it which... is similar to it is directly related to exactly that mechanism. So, uh, you know, we've seen the, the the medical literature over the years uh, by researchers uh, in England who've talked about uh, the relationship of gluten uh, sensitivity to the brain. Uh, there's been uh, this Dr. Marios Hajavasalu has written extensively in the journal Lancet, which is very well respected, indicating that you don't have to have celiac disease to have issues with gluten. Oh, really? I mean, to this day, there's still people writing uh, disparaging blogs about uh, me saying, you know, if you don't have gluten, uh, you should have all of the, you can eat, if you don't have celiac, eat all the gluten you want, no big deal. Not recognize what's being published in the medical literature telling us that there is an entity called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. These are not people with an autoimmune condition. The relationship between gluten and the leaky gut that you so eloquently just described uh, I think was originally uh, popularized by work done by a Harvard medical doctor, Dr. Um, I'll think of his name in just a moment, Alessio Fasano. And uh, what Dr. Fasano demonstrated is that gluten, and specifically the gliadin part of gluten, another protein found within gluten, induces this leakiness of the gut. When the gut leaks, then it induces inflammation. The reason that is important 
is because inflammation is the operative cornerstone of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, autism, diabetes, autoimmune conditions, and even cancer. So, you know, here we are having a conversation right now, a former NFL player and a neurologist, and we're talking about the gut and the leakiness of the gut being related to, you know, keeping us healthy and functional. It's, it's certainly a place where, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think either of us would have thought this is where we'd be today. No, Doc, when I, um, and I've, I, we talked a little bit offline in 1999 when I first uh, was introduced to Mauro De Pasquale and, you know, got on an anabolic diet and he did a lot of my stuff. The changes in not only uh, performance, um, you know, just in terms of muscle structure and strength and clarity and a lot of these other things were very, very apparent to me early on. And then when I, uh, a year later, I went and I worked with Tom Inkledon out in uh, Arizona and we did pretty extensive blood work and, um, you know, uh, allergy food testing. And I remember he, when he gave me the sheet, there was all these foods in red and then there was some, you know, in uh, orange and there was some green. And I'm looking at this and he goes, you know, um, uh, you know, these are food allergies. And I'm like, so what are the, you know, these are the ones I'm most allergic to. These are the ones I'm kind of allergic to and the green are the good. And he goes, yeah, easy enough. I'm like, so I just need to eat all the green foods? He goes, yeah. And I was like, all right, seems easy enough. And it just so happened that all the red foods were uh, soy, uh, gluten, uh, corn, and it kind of went through all these different ones. And then there were some moderate ones, and it was amazing within just eating the green foods, which looked like uh, meat, fish, poultry, uh, greens, uh, you know, sweet potatoes. I mean, it was basically a, you know, what people, a lot of people today would call almost a paleo-esque diet. And, you know, white rice was on that uh, green as well. And all of a sudden I started eating that. And I think in a matter of probably about three or four weeks, I dropped, you know, easily three, four percent body fat. And all of a sudden became very similar to what I am today. And just performance went up. I was stronger. I was fatter uh, or fitter, uh, sleep better. And everything kind of really fell into line. And I remember I came back and I started talking to people. And they were like, so wait a minute, you were just eating different foods? I'm like, yeah, I just didn't eat the foods that were red. You and mean to tell me. Uh, that you're you're making a statement here that food matters in terms of health. Wow, it's pretty bold. Well, I mean, you know, and what was so hard for me in a lot of ways is I'm like, you know what? Uh, food is by far the most anabolic substance in terms of performance that you could put into your body, and on top of it, it's probably one of the most emotionally crippling deals. And I'm sure you've dealt with people like I have who were so emotionally tied to food that you know every event that they go to whether it be Christmas holidays birthdays everything has to be tied around food and what was uh, you know pretty apparent early on as a you know NFL player we didn't do anything that didn't involve food you know we went out we had wings this and guys were just ma you know massive eaters you have really big guys that are you know in a, <laughs> are there for a reason but food became kind of the focal point and just the eating habits were pretty horrendous and it was you know pretty apparent to see you know, hey, if you eat this way, you're going to look a certain way. And I remember, you know, just merely just eating those green foods. And it's, you know, very similar to what the diet we recommend today is, which, you know, I'm sure you'd fall right in line with. And, uh, you know, performance went up, everything. And then, you know, all of a sudden we get to the end of this deal. And, you know, and part of the reason we're talking is that concussion movie came out and, you know, about it, the NFL hiding a lot of the, you know, cognitive brain issues that are obviously very apparent. But the, there was kind of a bigger thing where I realized a lot of the recommendations that they're making, whether it be, you know, dietary through the teams or, you know, the pushing a Gatorade or even the standardized westernized diet, I think is really increasing and aiding and almost... Uh, exasperating a lot of these conditions and making them worse. Well, I would agree with you. I, and I, I think that we can talk science. 
which I'm delighted to do, but let's for just a moment talk about history. And again, the type of diet that has allowed you and me to have this conversation today, allowed our parents to meet, allowed our grandparents to meet, and goes back thousands and thousands of generations, has been a diet that is basically uh, deriving most of its calories from fat, some calories from protein, and very, very little calories from carbohydrates because our hunter-gatherer forebears didn't have access to carbohydrates, except on occasion uh, at a certain time of the year when fruit tends to ripen or the berries are ripe. And that's generally uh, in the late summer or early fall. That's when fruit is available. And you know, you wouldn't suddenly uh, stumble upon a grove of trees with uh, cartons of orange juice hanging from the limbs. There would be the occasional berry, the occasional fruit. And you know, it, that allowed us to survive. That was a time when our sweet tooth, which we've had for a couple millions of years, has actually, ser it actually served us well because we loved sweet back then. And sweet was an indication not just that in the fruit the starch had been broken down to sugar, which made it sweet, but in addition that that food, that fruit had the highest level of antioxidant vitamins, of polyphenols, of fiber, etc. So it was really for us the very best time to eat the fruit. And frankly, it was the very best time for the fruit to be eaten because that's when the seeds were just getting ready to germinate. So we helped out the fruit plant and, and it helped out uh, us. But you know the, the real key there is that uh, this is a time when there's maximum sugar, late summer, early fall, and our bodies were stimulated by our sweet tooth by eating sugar uh, which caused us to have higher levels of insulin, which allowed our bodies to make fat, which is really the primary reason that we have insulin. It's not sugar storage, it's to make fat. And that allowed us as hunter-gatherers to survive the winter when food was less available. So this mechanism of eating sugar and making fat was an incredibly powerful survival mechanism that has allowed us to survive to this moment. But that said, that same mechanism is happening 365 days a year, multiple times each day, in people uh, that are alive today. And unfortunately, that mechanism of sugar leading to increased insulin, which leads to fat deposition, is the reason that our health is so compromised. So, you know, you think back, wonderful, it allowed us to get here, but now we've got the ability to understand that and using the parts of the brain that define us as humans, the forebrain, allow us to override our, our desire to always satisfy sweet, which is as powerful as reproduction. That's where sweet, liking sweet is in the primitive part of the brain that has to do with uh, fight or flight, reproduction. That's, where, that's how strong this desire to eat sweet is. What's, what's happened is that uh, monetary interests have uh, gotten involved over the past 30 years to really convince us that carbs are good for us, especially this notion of complex carbohydrates, which is uh, really far-fetched, immediately broken down to simple sugars when you digest them. And at the same time, uh, there's this notion that fat is suddenly, after two million years, suddenly bad because our scientists told us so. And uh, that, I think, is hugely responsible for our ill health. You, you only have to go back to March of 2007 
uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association when there was published a head-to-head -head comparison of the Atkins diet, which is a very low-carbohydrate, higher-fat diet, uh, with the Ornish diet, which is just the opposite. Very high levels of carbs, extremely low levels of dietary fat, and they looked at uh, what was the outcome uh, over a 12-month period in a group of uh, over, I think, 300 individuals who were overweight or even obese, and what they found was really quite compelling, that there was dramatically more weight loss uh, in the individuals on the Atkins diet, uh, and there was great improvement in all kinds of other parameters that you would look at in the blood like cholesterol measurements, even blood pressure, again, in the Atkins diet, eating more fat. And yet, you know, when this study was published, no one wanted to talk about it. And we clung to this notion of fats being bad and carbs being good. And finally, again, I'm going to say it for the third time, this morning, the dietary guidelines are published saying, hey, guess what? The carbs are killing you and welcome fat back to the table. Doc, you talk about the evolution in terms of how we're able to accomplish that in 30 years, and I know that gluten-free and a lot of these diets are, are shifting that way. So is it the money now, like you said, a monetary example that we're that the government is passing this? Uh, I, I would never say that there's complete altruism in the publication and the issuing of the uh, dietary guidelines from the government. There's always lobby influence. Uh, lobby influence is how we got to the original recommendations of complex carbs. It came from you know, the grain industry. It came from them lobbying uh, the uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration, and that's how that all happened. I mean, I'm not saying something that people aren't certainly well aware of. So there's still going to be influence of industry in governmental uh, decision and policy. Uh, but that said, um, that's the time for us to step up and be recognized in terms of offering up the other side of the story. Then the public has this information. They can make the decision based upon being better educated. A few months ago, I, I wrote a blog uh, about um, the flu vaccine. And, you know, everybody's saying you have to have your flu immunization. If you don't uh, have a flu vaccine every year, uh, probably your children will be born naked and terrible things are going to happen in the world. We don't, we don't know, but you've got to get it. I mean, you can walk down the concourse in an airport these days and uh, they can give you a flu shot. So all I published was simply the notion that um, you, you should know what the CDC is telling us uh, in terms of our, uh, the effectiveness of flu vaccines. And you know, when you go to the, the drugstore and they're offering you a flu shot, they'll say, oh yeah, this is going to be 90% effective in keeping you from getting the flu. Well, with all due respect, that's not what the CDC has told us. Uh, in the year 2014-15, the effectiveness of the flu shot in reducing your risk of getting the flu was 23%. means, uh, what, 77% uh, of people would still get the flu. So, it's, you know, it's my mission, and I think all of our mission uh, is to just, hey, opinion is great, but let's look at what the science is telling us. The science in terms of ketosis and a higher fat diet, in terms of protecting the brain, has been around a long time. Uh, the science uh, with respect to uh, eating more complex carbs and cutting fat is 
shaky at best as we're, we're now recognizing. And I think, let's be fair, let's vet this science in a very educated and comprehensive way. Doc, my, uh, <laughs> you're gonna laugh at this, but my first impression and more importantly, my first experience with the flu shot was when I was playing in Philadelphia. They required everybody on the team to get a flu shot. And so I, you know, lined up like everybody and get a flu shot. And it's really been the only time in the last 20 years I've been sick. I got so ill, I almost didn't play on a Sunday. And from that point on, I would never take the flu shot again. And they were like, you need flu shot. I'm like, dude, you can find me. I'm not letting you ever do it. And never got sick again. And uh, But I used to, every year, would watch guys get the flu shot and then end up getting sick. And it just became one of those things where I'm like, this seems, uh, you know, just anecdotally, just watching, just being like, no, I'm not doing that. But you well, know, these are things that, you know, people buy into kind of wholeheartedly where it's like, oh, everybody gets a flu shot. The flu shot must prevent me. And it goes back to that idea of, you know, people just don't want to know or they don't want to ask or they're just not conscientious enough to really object to everything around them. I, it, you're exactly right. You know, you say anecdotally, and I would say that the plural of anecdote is data. You know, the more these anecdotes that accumulate, it suddenly becomes something you can, you can publish. And, hey, we have a huge herd mentality in America that is prompted by the commercials on the evening news. I mean, everybody thinks that if they have an upset stomach when they eat a bratwurst, that they should continue eating the bratwurst but take some kind of acid-blocking drug. No, your body is telling you something and you've got to pay attention. Don't just take the drug and, and, and push through it. That doesn't make any sense at all. Well, we've always said if you eat something and all of a sudden you go and get violently sick where you're in the bathroom and your body exits it, then that's a good indication that you shouldn't eat that food. Well, don't you need to like test that at well, least a dozen, or well, two so, dozen times? So I had one client who we sent out and got blood work, and he had probably one of the highest levels of inflammation I've ever seen. I mean, to the point where I was like, dude, you're, you know, like, like his blood work was a disaster, and we ended up, you know, kind of going through and getting food allergies, and he's like, I don't eat any of these foods, I don't eat any of these foods. And it ended up coming out that he's like, you know, once a week I go out and I uh, go eat nachos and, you know, we go out to this Mexican food restaurant with the family and I eat all this Mexican food. And the guy had this, like, death allergy. I mean, probably the, you know, most severe allergy I've ever seen to corn. And he's like, as soon as I eat, i got to run to the bathroom. And he goes, it just basically expels me. And, you know, they have to bring in a hazmat around the bathroom. <laughs> and uh, he's like, but it's only once a week. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. If you got that violently ill off of eating one meal, why did you eat it? He's like, well, I didn't think it was really that big a deal. I mean, everybody gets sick when they eat, right? And yeah, I, right. I, you know, but that's like that's the one that just or you know, I, I have a a pitcher that we we've been working with for the last year who you know pitches at a small college and he's got a bunch of talent. You know, throws a 94, 95 mile an hour fastball. And he came in, he was having you know some body fat and he was some performance issues and a couple things. And we ended up putting him on you know a fairly strict uh, ketogenic diet because both of his parents have uh, you know diabetic issues and he just has a history for it. So we did a little bit of carb cycling and kind of put it back in as a refeed if he needed it with you know just obviously getting him to go uh, you know kind of avoiding kind of standard uh, westernized type stuff. And um, he goes back to school and he lost like 20 pounds. He picked up muscle. He got stronger. He's performing at his best and he starts talking to a strength coach about diet. Next thing you know, he lands up in the health administration office where the doctors are lecturing him on how dangerous it is that he's not consuming carbohydrates. So he yeah, calls me. Again, he, people are down on what they're not up on. And, uh, you know, again, what did the Dietary Advisory Committee say? And what have humans been eating for two million years? So when we see this, this big push for the paleo movement, you know, with people like uh, Rob Wolf, uh, Lauren Cordain, Nora Gedgaudis, and, you know, they're pretty much in the mainstream looked upon as outliers. Uh, I, I think that the tide is shifting, however, and I think the, the, the results 
are propelling this. The results that people get and they publish on my on my blog site on Facebook, you know, I I went low carb and higher fat and I'm losing weight. It seems crazy, but it's happening. And it's just, you know, again, I say give me a couple of weeks, just do it as crazy as it sounds. I mean, talk about crazy. Uh, you know, I, I'm treating certain medical disorders with fecal transplantation, giving people good fecal material uh, from a healthy person who've upset their gut bacteria and re reversing various medical situations. You talk about crazy. I mean, who would have ever thought about that? And now over 500 hospitals in America are using this technique, fecal transplantation, uh, to treat you know, a certain type of diarrheal, and it's called clostridium. So, uh, you know, nothing is off the table, and especially with me, with, with patients that I deal with who have really serious issues, you know, the Alzheimer's patients, the autism patients, and their caregivers and families. There's no pharmaceutical for them, and so we've really got to push the envelope. You know, Doc, you had said something earlier um, about uh, just how um, it, it it's the ketogenic diet is like a little bit um, similar to like the Paleolithic diet. And I know we've had some guests on um, who's kind of like like dispelled this this myth that uh, if you ate like a Paleolithic diet that you would you would have like the same benefits as our ancestors did millions of years ago, like bigger bone, um, you know, more muscle mass, better eyesight. Um, and, and these guys have kind of said that, you know, the environments are different, that, that, that today's environment is different than how it was back in like the hunter-gatherer times. Well, I and, think that's a very, very compelling uh, uh, statement because I, there is some truth to that. And, and I think that our environment today is far more stressful on multiple levels uh, than uh, the hunter-gatherer times. I mean, sure, we're not going to get chased... Uh, by a saber-toothed cat on the one hand, but on the other hand, our environment is toxic. We're exposed to heavy metals. We're exposed to endocrine disruptors. Uh, there are loud noises. There's stress. Uh, there's uh, things on the television that raise your cortisol level. Uh, every day you're hearing about some new violent issue. So uh, um, in that regard, that's very stressful to the human body, and it is an environmental event, as is the food we eat. Uh, but I would say that uh, the answer, the response to that is, therefore, we've got to increase the nutrient density of our food to increase our, our detoxification pathways. We've got to increase the foods that help us reduce the inflammation that's caused by our change in environment. Basically, we've got to amp up the paleo diet and really recognize that we can do so because we understand it. But I think when you look at the non-paleo approach that welcomes uh, sugar and carbs to the table, that's adding insult to injury. That's compounding the changes that we experience in our environment today, and it's certainly something to be avoided. I'm glad. I'm glad that it's not too late, you know, because I know there's like there's some information out there that shows like when when Neolithic type foods were were brought into like into our diet, the body comp. You know, I know we're talking like brain, but like body composition started changing uh, like narrow jaws uh the the teeth weren't set right beer bellies like this the humans started forming different and it, it almost makes it sound like that now our genes have been altered and this is our future but yet 
we can just kind of clean up the diet, take like a ketogenic approach, and we can still get those benefits. Uh, you know, we we can still have the benefits uh, physically, um, even in even in that kind of a state. You know, like a state of maybe 80 or 90 percent of society in like this this Neolithic kind of like body composition um, state. Denny, you're well, talking you know, about. You mentioned Oh, sorry. Sorry, I was going to say, that, uh, Denny, like, you know, part of the thing you're looking at, too, is you talk about, like, gene expression over the amount of years. You talk about nutrient density over the course of generations and generations. You know, you have to remember that, you know, epigenetics looks back at, like, our, what our grandparents, and then you look at the people today, two or three generations of that have been eating this way, opposed from people that moved to this country that might not have eaten this way. So, I mean, I don't necessarily know if in one generation, one person can make uh, all of a sudden you go from, like you said, like the beer belly with the picture of the Egyptian who's in bad shape and all of a sudden put him into like the, you know, the modern hunt and gather idea, the guy running on the Serengeti. So, I mean, the problem is, is that in real time, I don't know if these things can, you know, reverse themselves. But I think what the doc is really talking about is can we avoid and stay off some of these problems that, you know, are seem to be plaguing our society in mass numbers that didn't exist even, you know, 50 years ago. Well, there are really two sides to that discussion, I think, that are worth uh, looking at. And first is the idea of our genetic code being modified by our lifestyle choices. And that's a relatively new uh, concept, that our food choices, our habits, what we expose ourselves to, changes moment to moment the expression of our genes. And it's been estimated that some 70% of genes that code for health and longevity are actually under our control. That's very compelling because... You know, back when I went to medical school, we thought that our DNA code was locked in a glass case and determined everything that we would do and be in our whole physiology. So, you know, the notion of this fixed code, uh, I think, has been replaced by this idea of a very dynamic DNA that changes and is adaptable to changes in the environment, which is really a good thing once you understand that and once you understand how you can change expression of your DNA in a positive way. And I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment. But the other really um, compelling uh, news is that it looks as if uh, our experiences in this lifetime do in fact change the DNA of our germ cells that we pass on to our progeny, to our children. And so therefore they inherit genes that are slightly different than ours that were in fact changed generation to generation. So we are undergoing generational changes uh, and it, it's actually very true, and that's, that kind of rocked the boat when that information came out as well. But I think the empowering part of the story is that we have the ability to change our gene expression for the better. There's one gene pathway I just want to mention called the NRF2 pathway. It's getting a lot of attention these days, especially in the field of neurology, because it mediates inflammation, antioxidant function, and detoxification. And we can ramp it up by eating cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, um, Brussels sprouts, kale, uh, by drinking a tea uh, and by aerobic exercise and even by drinking coffee and taking turmeric, for example. So there are things that we can do to enhance the body's own production of antioxidants far beyond you know, taking the vitamin C and the vitamin E as a supplement. And there, this also reduces this pathway of inflammation free radical mediated stress and helps us detoxify this very, very toxic world that we're exposed to. So, you know, these are simple dietary changes that have a profound effect on our physiology based upon changing 
the expression of our life code. That's pretty darn cool. What kind of uh, environmental issues do you find to be kind of most, I guess you could say, uh, most damaging to people? Like, for example, you know, we live here in Southern California and happen to live right near John Wayne Airport and, fl and planes fly over. So, I mean, you know, constantly involved in some form of, uh, you know, jet fuel, jet exhaust landing on us, opposed from somebody living in New Jersey near the dumps. I mean, I'm sure you see, you know, within your own practice and other people that there are certain environmental things that can be extremely, you know, gripping and toxic and, and damaging to individuals. I would, I would say that's correct. And uh, while there are differences comparing uh, Southern California to uh, areas of New Jersey or wherever you may want to go, uh, there are some common threads uh, across Western cultures that are, by virtue of their scope, probably the biggest issues. And I'd say uh, you'd have to include antibiotics at the, at the very top of the list. I mean, here is a class of medications that have been life-saving and have a very positive upside, but antibiotics, because of their incredible overusage in Western cultures these days, are threatening the health of our gut bacteria, and that is having a devastating effect on uh, human health. That science is just in its very uh, nascent stages we're just beginning to understand what we're doing to ourselves every time we take an antibiotic. And keep in mind that here in America, 70% of the antibiotics that are used are actually going into raising cattle and poultry. So, uh, it's, so you can't escape it. Uh, the other thing that I think is so widespread that is an environmental issue are uh, the genetically modified foods. Not necessarily because they in and of themselves are inherently threatening, but the main reason that uh, they've genetically modified the corn and the soy, etc., is to make them Roundup resistant, make them resistant to a weed killer that they then spray on the crops. So when you're eating the tortilla that you mentioned earlier, or I think it was uh, the nachos and the guy got sick, the thought that comes to my mind is here is a food based on corn, corn sprayed very heavily with this glyphosate, this Roundup, this herbicide, that now has been characterized as being a significant threat to human health because it changes our gut bacteria. It changes our microbiome. The gut bacteria harbor 99% of the DNA in your body. That's a compelling thought. When the World Health Organization uh, in April of last year issued a statement saying that glyphosate, which is this weed killer in Roundup and 750 other products, that this glyphosate is a probable, not possible, human, not laboratory animal, carcinogen. That's what they stated worldwide. We have to take notice of that. This is being used uh, to the extent of more than a hundred uh, metric, a million metric tons a year uh, on our planet. It's killing the bugs in the soil, killing the bugs uh, in the atmosphere, in the oceans, in lakes, and in our intestines as well. So these are two fairly underreported environmental threats that are turning out to be probably the biggest threats uh, that we could consider. Dan. Yeah, no, it, uh, Doc, I'd like to turn a little bit and start talking a little bit about uh, concussions and, you know, some of the brain injury, as I, we talked a little bit offline, you know, with the concussion movie coming out and all of a sudden the stuff with the NFL and them finally kind of acknowledging that repeated head injuries, you know, could lead to CTE and other key factors. Um, is there, you know, and I'm sure you have ideas and thoughts and, you know, you know definitely 
some uh, you know interesting you know, take on you know how this is happening and and you know more importantly, is there a way to reverse it and maybe safeguard the guys against it? Well, it, it's wonderful that it's it's coming uh, to light. You know, we we've seen the data for a long, long time. It's uh, very, very uh, compelling uh, when you recognize who knew about this and when they knew about it and how how it was suppressed and and how that filtered down, not just you know at the level of professional sports, but how that suppression of this information ultimately impacted uh, college level, high school level, and even uh, middle school level sports, had people known what was going on in, in professional, in, in the NFL for example, others at, at the other levels would have taken notice a lot sooner and we would have, you know, protected or, or done things differently for women's soccer or, or, or Pop Warner even. So it's, um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing that this is happening. We're understanding how darn uh, delicate the brain really is and how even a single event of trauma, but certainly worse with multiple events of seemingly small events of trauma, sets into motion a cascade of events that then continues on year after year and may actually even worsen year after year, even when people are super careful. So, uh, hey, you know, we've all been there. I, I, I've, I've looked up from the, the mat uh, in uh, full contact martial arts at, at this and wondered where I was. I don't know how many times. And, you know, what can I do these days uh, to rejuvenate my brain and, and to protect it with a positive family history of Alzheimer's? The good news is that we know there are some really powerful things uh, that people can be doing preemptively, even before the event occurs, uh, right after the event and then really as a lifelong program to keep the brain healthy and by and large these are dietary recommendations. So let's just go through them. There is an omega-3 called DHA, docosahexaenoic acid. It's the reason people take fish oil or uh, other sources of DHA like algae. And what we know DHA does is it's nature's anti-inflammatory. DHA blocks an enzyme called COX-2. It's a COX-2 inhibitor. That's how uh, ibuprofen and aspirin and uh, Celebrex work. They block the COX-2 enzyme. So that's one of the things that it does, but it also turns on genes. Again, we're talking epigenetics here. It turns on the genes that allow the brain to grow new brain cells, increase the connection between brain cells called neuroplasticity, and also uh, allows the brain cells to be more protected if they are traumatized. So taking a fish oil pill is sort of like putting your helmet on 24-7. Uh, there is, in fact, uh, one of the uh, NFL teams that has been on fish oil for a number of years, and they've reported, uh, my good friend Dr. Joseph Maroon, who's their team doctor and neurosurgeon, uh, has re been able to report significant reduction, not just in uh, cognitive-related injuries, but in systemic problems, uh, loss, not being able to play because of pain and, and pulled muscles, et cetera. So uh, DHA, you can get it anywhere you like. You can eat salmon. I recommend a dosage somewhere in the neighborhood of around 1,200 milligrams a day. If you take a capsule that has 200 milligrams of DHA, that's six capsules a day. Good to keep it refrigerated. You can chew them. You can swallow them. The DHA is probably, along with the ketogenic diet, we'll get there in a moment, absolutely at the top of the list. Now the next 
uh, thing that we've been hinting around uh, at uh, throughout our discussion has been this notion of a higher fat diet that's good for the brain. Who knew? I mean, again, this is in the face of 30 years of being told that fat is going to kill you, it's going to make you fat and give you diabetes. And we know nothing is further from the truth. Let's put that aside for now and talk about how wonderfully effective being in a low grade of ketosis is for the brain. First, let me define ketosis. Ketosis is the state in which your metabolism shifts away from burning sugar and carbs to burning fat. When you're low in carbs, when you're in starvation, for example, or you are inducing this state by eating low levels of carbs, then the liver changes body fat into fats that are called ketones, specifically one that's important for the brain called beta-hydroxybutyrate. That'll be on the quiz. You need to know that. And when the brain is burning these fats, the brain is burning a fuel that is super efficient, that codes for the gene that allows the brain to rebuild itself, that actually leads to the brain growing new brain cells. We call that neurogenesis, which 30 years ago, when I was in medical school, we were told that didn't happen in humans, that we could, it's stem cell therapy in your brain. You get on a low-grade ketotic diet and you're doing stem cell therapy to rebuild your brain. That's a powerful argument. But it also allows the brain cells and really every cell throughout your body to burn fuel but create less exhaust, if you will, exhaust in the form of damaging chemicals called free radicals that damage protein, damage fat, and even damage your DNA. And you can measure this. You can measure in the laboratory animal the damage to DNA before it's placed on a ketogenic diet and then after. And the rate of damaging free radicals, damaging the DNA, goes down dramatically. Uh, Gary Taubes uh, wrote a wonderful book called uh, Good, uh, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. And uh, he's a, a really top-notch um, medical researcher. I've had the opportunity to, to uh, interview him. And what he talks about is uh, the fact that a low-grade ketosis is really the natural state of humans for the past two million years. And it's only suddenly that we're burning these carbs and not protecting our brains and not as aggressively allowing our, our brain cells to repair themselves and even to grow uh, new connections between brain cells, which is fundamental for uh, learning. So here's what you got to do. You got to take your DHA every day. You got to cut your carbs significantly. I recommend, you know, for most adults, somewhere in the neighborhood of total carbs, 60 to 80 grams a day. And you've got to welcome fat back to the table. I like to recommend a couple of tablespoons of extra virgin coconut oil, a liter each week, a liter of extra virgin olive oil. It seems like a lot, but it isn't. Now, why would I say that? A wonderful study was published uh, last year in the Journal of the American Medical Association that showed in comparison to the Mediterranean diet, those individuals who maintained the Mediterranean diet but added in a liter of olive oil each week had a reduction in risk of dementia by 41%. Wow. So for a guy like me, that makes sense because my dad had Alzheimer's, but for everybody listening to this podcast, you need to understand that if you live to be age 85, your risk of getting Alzheimer's is 50-50. So you want to do everything you can to reduce your risk. The third thing uh, that uh, comes to us from the University of Pittsburgh 
is the idea that you can also turn on that gene that will protect your brain by getting simply some aerobic exercise. The study involved uh, a group of two groups of individuals. One group stretched for two years and one group actually did an aerobics program, a whopping 142 minutes of aerobics each week. Do the math, that's 20 minutes a day. That's all I'm asking. Get your heart rate up for 20 minutes every day. That turns on the genes that will not only increase the chemical that grows new brain cells, but as they showed in the study, the brains of those people who exercise, their memory center, which is called the hippocampus, actually grew in elderly people in whom otherwise it would have shrunken over the two-year period. Wow. So you can turn on stem cell therapy by taking some DHA, getting yourself in a low grade of ketosis, and 20 minutes of aerobics uh, each day. That's all I'm asking. Now, Doc, are those universal prescriptions, or yep. is that based off of kind of lifestyle and activity level? You know, for example, let's say the extreme. Uh, you have a obese individual, male, 300 plus pounds, and then you have a uh, you know NFL football player. Uh, those are going to be optimal recommendations for longevity, or is that like you know because we often we often weigh recommendations for our clients based off of you know what is the priority here performance or longevity, because those two are, are, in some cases, mutually exclusive on some of these recommendations. Well, I think that they aren't, and with all due respect, if you take somebody who's morbidly obese and uh, getting no exercise, uh, certainly that person's going to have to ramp up to the 20 minutes. I mean, if this person can barely get out of a chair, you, uh, John, are going to need to work with that person and, and uh, you know, work on them getting on a program that escalates day-to-day -day a little bit more exercise. Uh, 20, uh, rather 60 to 80 grams of carbs a day is all that person needs. It's all an NFL player needs, with all due respect. And, you know, the last part of the program, adding in the DHA, there's nobody that I can think of who wouldn't benefit from DHA. Now, uh, the, the notion of being good for health is not mutually exclusive with the notion of longevity. Because, really, there wouldn't be any difference. Uh, What's going to keep you healthy today is going to help keep you healthy in the long run. We're not living for today. Basically, we're really trying to get to our health and then maintain our health for the longest time we can. Uh, we know maybe, maybe I misspoke there, Doc. I, I meant uh, I did say, meant performance. Uh, you know, being an optimal performer in your domain, whether you're an offensive lineman or a hundred meter sprinter or um, a mixed martial artist. Yeah, and you know we're all going to have levels of glycogen that are going to get us through the four quarters. Do you have necessarily the degree of glycogen storage in your liver and muscles that allow you to run a marathon? Uh, probably not, but you have to understand that you have 20-fold more calories stored in body fat than you have stored in glycogen. And all that needs to happen here is you have to shift your metabolism so that you are what is called keto-adapted. What does it mean? And it takes several weeks to get there. But after you've kept yourself in a low grade of ketosis for several weeks, suddenly you're able to flex fuel. Your body's able to use both dietary fat as well as body fat as a fuel. And, you know, you're not going to run out of gas. The reason that you have to suck the gels when you're running long distance, a half marathon or greater, because usually you know, if you're running 10-minute miles, you can burn glycogen and still make it through a half marathon without much of an issue. But after that, you know, if you don't have a heck of a lot of glycogen stores, then you're going to need something. That's why people eat those 
those gels that will that make you gag and drink the Gatorade and the Powerade along along the second half of that route. But if your body is saying to you, "Hey, this is cool. Been here before. We're going to be tapping into body fat. We got plenty of that." I mean, you know, when you look at the the, the Kenyan long distance runners, they're not carb loading and they win all the the Boston marathons. These guys are not uh, loading up with carbs. They're not pounding the, the pasta the night before the race. You know, and, and even to this day, when you go to a race, they always have the spaghetti dinner the night before. That's the last thing in the world that you want to do is to load up with a, a, a carb-rich, uh, gluten-loaded, uh, inflammation-inducing uh, uh, food that's going to spike your blood sugar the night before the race. Your body produces insulin drives your blood sugar low and you end up at the, at the starting line not knowing which, which way is up. So uh, if you uh, don't eat the night before, your body's now getting ready. It's burning the fat, chewing the fat, if you will. And that situation is set. You've got a perfect delivery system of calories, low levels of inflammation. You're ready to go. Our ancestors didn't carb load before they chased down the gazelle. And we didn't chase down animals. We basically would... Uh, follow animals at a at a trot until finally the animals would fall over because they didn't they couldn't keep up the distance. That's how we killed animals, you know, with with spears. It wasn't that we suddenly ambushed them. So, uh, I think you know we take a lesson again from our Paleolithic forebears. Well, Doc, that's actually how our Neolith or our uh, what is it? Um, uh, um, the, uh, what is it? Neolithic. No, no, not the Neolithic. Uh, the um, Oh, dude, I, I can't even think of it right now. But it's uh, uh, the the Neanderthals died. So when they looked at all the Neanderthal skulls, they were all bashed. So the Neanderthals used to actually rush in and try to beat the animals to death, and then they end up all dying that way. So when they looked at the Neanderthals, every one of the skulls that they found all of these massive uh, kind of crushes in them. Whereas the Homo sapiens were a little bit smarter about like tracking and yeah, following. Slow play. Slow, slow play. play. <laughs> but Doc, hey, uh, can you get into like the keto adapted? I mean, that's pretty something that is uh, you know seems pretty easy to me. But can you talk a little bit about? what it takes to get keto adapted because the biggest trick that we've seen with people is uh, even though they cut the carbs low, they end up kind of eating a little too much protein and, you know, uh, you know, like the protein neogenesis ends up kicking them out of ketosis. And it's kind of this interesting deal. I mean, we started using uh, like uh, ketone meters and started checking, you know, uh, ketones. And obviously you talked about earlier about using coconut oil, MCT, um, and also maybe ketone salts and ketone esters to try to stay in ketosis. Well, I'd be delighted to. So again, keto adaptation is really training your body to burn fat and getting your body uh, away from reliance upon uh, basically glucose or carbohydrates that are broken down to glucose. And it, it does, it takes some time. And the way that you make that happen is to restrict your carbs, restrict your sugars, and welcome back to the table sources of fat. And in this case, to get into ketosis, it would be the addition of uh, coconut oil and or medium chain triglyceride oil, MCT oil, which is certainly, as you well know, very, very popular uh, amongst bodybuilders to cut fat. Who knew? Eating fat to get thin. Uh, it's you know very popular in, in health food stores as well. There's a wonderful book, from my perspective, wonderful, called Alzheimer's Disease, What If There Was a Cure, written by Dr. Mary Newport, who put her husband on a, a very powerful ketone-based uh, diet uh, who had Alzheimer's and his situation improved dramatically. So uh, it's, it's really critically important that carbohydrates are limited and I think you make a very, very good point about the protein. Because 
uh, people, uh, and we mentioned this earlier, and that is there, that the keto diet is not exactly the same as the paleo diet because you know when you're wanting to get in ketosis, you cannot pound the protein because as you well point out, you will create um, sugar through a process called gluconeogenesis out of the amino acids being reassembled and uh, recycled uh, into creating a sugar basically, which will then make it more difficult for you to get into a low grade of ketosis. So um, when you are going through this process, you can be measuring your urine with various uh, uh, measuring uh, sticks that they sell at the, at the um, pharmacy. They have various names, but you can measure the level of ketosis that you're developing. And uh, you know, I, I want to get back to a, a question that you raised earlier about, you know, is this a one-size-fits-all, is this a universal kind of recommendation? And I think it's important that I caveat here, and that is um, that certainly this is not what diabetics need to be doing. Uh, so if, if any of you out there are listening to this podcast uh, have diabetes, uh, you, you, know, you want to discuss any of these ideas with your treating physician. But again, uh, the key to getting your blood sugar under control if you're a type 2 diabetic is, of course, to cut down on the carbohydrates. That's what's fueling your diabetes. That's what got you into this mess in the first place. So if you're on medication and you suddenly drop your sugars and drop your carbs, then your blood sugar can get dangerously low. So this is something you want to work on with your doctor and hopefully she or he uh, understands the benefits of what we're trying to achieve here. So you know, in a nutshell then, uh, this is a process by which you basically tell your physiology that you're changing fuels here, uh, that you're shifting from carbs and sugars uh, to burning fat you're ramping up the enzyme activity in your uh, liver to begin the process of what's called beta oxidation of fat, and your body's going to be happy forevermore. Doc, we, we've had several clients that are, you know, ex-athletes, fighters, MMA, and, you know, football players that have had some form of traumatic brain injury, and when we put them in ketogenic approaches and trying to get them into ketosis, the one comment that I've heard that's pretty universal is their uh, um, insomnia becomes kind of the deal that all of a sudden they, they sleep pretty well. As soon as they start trying to get into ketosis and we ramp that or we cut the carbs back and ramp up the fats, instantly uh, insomnia kind of results. And after just doing a little kind of poking around, I realized, or some of the literature I read talked about, um, you know, these being, you know, problems with the hypothalamus and, you know, uh, just really a indicator of something bigger. Have you seen that within your own practice or have any? Well, I've seen many things happen. And I think that there are a couple of other points that people need to take, uh, uh, with a grain of salt. And the first point is take a grain of salt. Uh, a lot of people who uh, become fatigued and uh, uh, a little anxious perhaps uh, during the early stages of this and develop maybe headaches is because they're not getting enough salt. And so we recommend about uh, one to two teaspoons of salt each day. I think it goes a long way because, you know, frankly, when you're shifting away from these processed carbohydrate rich foods, these are foods that generally contain a lot of salt. When you're going into ketosis, you tend to urinate more and you tend to lose your salt. As such, you also should take a potassium and a magnesium a supplement, especially um, you know, when you're cutting back on your protein. So potassium, magnesium, and sodium, I think, are really important from the ion perspective. Uh, and you know, what works from a supplement perspective would be a little bit of uh, maybe 100, uh, rather 500 to 1,000 milligrams of tryptophan seems to work really well. 
And uh, you know, a lot of people think as they're easing into ketosis that they don't want to exercise during that period of time. With all due respect, you need to continue your exercise at that point because that's what's going to push the shift. As your body says, "Hey, where are my calories coming from?" Now that I need them because I'm I need them because I'm exercising, it'll draw upon your fat. It'll tend to push that whole process forward. Supplement like some psyllium husk or psyllium husk or anything like a fiber. I mean, we—that's another comment we get from people. All of a sudden, they get kind of backed up a little bit. And my comment was always just keep adding fat, and everything will kind of clean out a little bit. But well, uh, it's a you know, so point. let me let me just, uh, if I may, just approach it for a moment. Uh, with all due respect, the last fiber that you'd want to give somebody in this situation is psyllium, and the reason being is that what psyllium does is it uh, leads to lowering of magnesium and lowering of other uh, ions. It tends to bind them and then people poop them out. So uh, I think that that would not be uh, my, my first recommendation and that's why we discuss things. Uh, again, I think when you add back magnesium, uh, especially in the form of magnesium citrate, my gosh, people are going to have no trouble pooping. But I, I would say that and there's another uh, discussion here with reference to fiber that I think is really, really uh, at the top of the list. And that is people need to be consuming what's called prebiotic fiber. Fiber is great, but the unique type of fiber called prebiotic fiber is important because that's the special type of fiber that nurtures the gut bacteria. You know, you think your body is in for a shock when you suddenly get off the carbs and you're adding in the fat. What do you think your gut bacteria think about that? You know, they got used to this, this crappy diet and now suddenly you've turned the tables on them. You've got to nurture your gut bacteria by having great levels of prebiotic fiber. Now you can eat foods that are low in carbohydrate and have a lot of good prebiotic fiber. A jicama, Mexican yam, um, a Jerusalem artichoke, dandelion greens, garlic, onions, leeks, etc. But you know, these days there are some wonderful prebiotic fibers at the health food store that are made uh, from things like baobab tree or acacia gum. And these are incredibly wonderful ways of giving your gut the fiber that it needs, but at the same time nurturing the gut bacteria. Is this kind of where like um, the uh, what was it like the you know cold potato starch where people were using like uh, you know cold rice and um, uh, you know what was it? Uh, the resistant starch? Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, not yeah. so much rice-based, but uh, the, the potato starch is a, a very significant uh, prebiotic, and uh, it, it's certainly um, uh, you know, worthwhile. And uh, in terms of bumping your carbs, I don't really, you don't really see that happening with potato starch. Yeah, I actually uh, tried the potato starch, and um, the amount of gas that <laughs> it was it was pretty funny like I, I felt like I was like a, um, like on a game show or something it was uh, it was pretty interesting but uh, you know I definitely think that there's uh, you know you know an opportunity especially for that to you know kind of come into play but uh, what about in terms of vegetables I mean um, you know is it something where like you know people can like free eat greens like we talked a little bit about cruciferous vegetables being um, you know extremely important for the antioxidant effect so I mean would it be you know, something where you sit down, you obviously eat your fats, you eat like a moderate, you know, lesser amount of protein, and then just kind of, you know, getting up a, a ton of roughage and all that through cruciferous vegetables. Yes, and, uh, you know, uh, the plate should be 70% nutrient-dense, colorful, organic, 
uh, vegetables. And so you're right. It, it is a more vegetarian diet. And when people are eating that, they're not going to have any trouble pooping, that's for sure. Uh, you know, let me just get back to the gas situation. And, you know, I usually tell people that will pass. <laughs> that's a joke. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, I got it. It was yeah. You're uh, ultimately, you know, upregulating the metabolism of the good bacteria that live within you. And it's, it's always good with these uh, prebiotics that you're adding into your diet to uh, in, increase them slowly you know, over a period of several weeks. You don't want to uh, go and get a prebiotic fiber and take you know, a couple of tablespoons on the first pass. You really want to try you know, maybe a teaspoon and work up from there. But again, uh, it, it brings up the argument, or rather the discussion of you know, adding in a good probiotic supplement as well. And you know, there are plenty of good probiotics on the market these days. Um, you talked a little bit about percentages and ratios with like 70% vegetables. Would it be, uh, can you give us kind of a, you know, an, an ideal kind of macronutrient breakdown for, you know, for a ketogenic approach you're recommending? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that if you're really trying to push ketosis, and I, and I think beyond uh, what we are talking about here, when we're trying to uh, push ketosis for a child, for example, with intractable epilepsy, uh, these kids are on 80% calories or so uh, derived from fat. So it's a very, very uh, focused approach uh, in a situation where, you know, a child or even an, an adult, there's a wonderful video of a woman on my website who wanted to get the word out about that. Uh, we're pushing very high levels of fat with specific fats added like the coconut or MCT oils and being really restrictive. Uh, in terms of protein and carbohydrates. You know, she's down to uh, probably 30 grams, 40 grams of carbs a day, and a similar amount, probably around 30, about 40 grams of protein. So um, it's, it's aggressive, but man, is it handy in terms of getting seizures under control. Because, you know, these days, if you're, uh, you have epilepsy and uh, you fail one medication, well, step two is you add another drug to that, and after two drugs aren't working, the, the current recommendation in neurology is that you have to have a part of your brain whacked out by a surgeon because uh, that's step three. And, you know, here is a dietary modality that can be used with a medication that can actually be effective at times without medication that's been proven uh, hugely effective since 1921. So... I wrote a blog about that saying, hey, look, before we're whacking out people's temporal lobes, uh, which will never grow back, why don't we at least try them on a ketogenic diet? So I, I think that for our purposes, you know, 60, 70 percent calories derived from fat is, is reasonable. Uh, and I think that, you know, the more protein after that and less carbohydrates will do it. But again, uh, everybody's physiology is different. Uh, and everybody's uh, ab ability to get into that low-grade ketosis is going to be different based upon, you know, their specifics of, of their genetics, but also specifics of how and what they're eating. Uh, you know, you talked about, for example, um, potato starch. What we know about potato starch is that uh, this is effective in regulating GLP-1, which is a hormone that uh, plays a really important role in regulating blood sugar as well as insulin sensitivity. So there's you know, so many nuances out there. Uh, but again, I'm really big on uh, other forms of prebiotics being like acacia gum and baobab, but uh, recognize that eating those 
uh, prebiotic-rich fiber foods. Again, you know, the Jerusalem artichoke, jicama, one of my favorites. Uh, these are foods that really can bump up uh, your body's ability to regulate its sugar and to help your body move into ketosis, which is really what you want. Doc, the, um, uh, just to take a step back, we started a charity a couple years ago called Wade's Army, and it was started in memory of a little boy named Wade DeBruyne who passed away from neuroblastoma. He was the son of my wife's best friend growing up, and she had twins, and uh, Wade ended up you know, getting contracting uh, neuroblastoma. He fought it off, and then it came back, and he passed away before the age of two. And, uh, you know, it was significant to us because, um, you know, not only is it my wife's best friend, but also I have twin girls. And, uh, you know, about the time coming up on a year of his uh, passing, my wife, you know, asked if there was anything we can do. And so we, you know, in typical fashion said, you know what, let's, uh, let's do a t-shirt drive, see if we can raise some money. And that first year we raised, I think, 18 grand. And then the next year we raised 50. And then this year we raised 100. And, uh, the big thing that I wanted to do was not only be able to offer money and help these families because it was so uh, underrepresented in terms of cancer. And, you know, these little guys are, you know, there's only a few places that really deal with these, um, you know, with neuroblastoma. And so the other big key was actually um, funding research. So a year ago we funded uh, a research study. And, you know, this year when I said, you know what, if I want to fund a research study, I want it to be something about ketogenic diets being used with uh, cancer patients having, you know, Fred Hatfield, who is another friend of ours who, you know, starved off his cancer with ketogenic and talking to uh, Dom D'Agostino and other people. Um, when we approached the FDA about actually funding our own study and doing uh, some form of trials with ketogenic diets, we were met honestly with, we will not do any type of study that has to do with dietary or with diet and cancer. And so we've been reaching out and looking for people to, that will help us or, you know, you know, that we can work to fund actually a study for neuroblastoma or cancer that we can start using this as a, a treatment because most of these kids end up passing because the, uh, the treatments and the chemotherapy is so uh, toxic to the body and these, you know, little kids, you know, 18 months old, 12, month, 12 months old, just aren't strong enough to be able to fight this stuff off and then when it comes back, it takes them. Well, it's, it's uh, A, uh, honorable and beautiful that you've dedicated to doing that, and B, you're, you're actually on target in terms of the mission here because there's huge precedent for that, I'm sure you're aware. And I would tell your listeners, uh, if you uh, go to the Huffington Post uh, and just put in Huffington, Perlmutter, and brain cancer, you'll see uh, that you know I've written extensively on the role of diet in brain cancer. In fact, one of the articles I wrote is called, When It Comes to Brain Cancer, Let's Look Beyond Chemo. Because we understand that uniquely uh, brain tumors uh, and cancer in general requires sugar to metabolize and that uh, the brain is really wonderfully adaptable to burning fat as opposed to sugar. So you can basically starve out a tumor uh, to, to some degree. There's a wonderful uh, researcher named Dr. Thomas Seyfried. And Dr. Seyfried is at um, Boston College, wrote a really incredible book about the treatment of a very aggressive type of, of brain tumor, the most common brain tumor in humans called glioblastoma, which is what killed uh, Senator Ted, Ted Kennedy, and revealing uh, his incredibly effective approach of putting these people in ketosis and how the tumors regress. And so uh, what you're talking about is really being vigorously explored now uh, in, in medicine. And uh, unfortunately, because it is 
nutritional and dietary, uh, no, it can't be patented. And because it's not patented, you don't have a huge uh, pharmaceutical uh, consortium lining up behind it. It's basically putting people on a ketogenic diet. And hey, likely people with brain tumors are going to have seizures anyway. So you know you can take care of two problems with one approach, and that is going on a ketogenic diet. So again, if your listeners want more information on that, go to the Huffington Post and just, I guess you wouldn't Google me there, but you would go whatever you do on Huffington Post, you'd Huffington me and put in uh, Perlmutter and brain cancer and the word Huffington, and you'll see what I've written about that. But the other big thing that's really, you know, uh, I'm surprised that we don't have more information on, and it's pretty sad that we're in a state today with autism where it's basically people just kind of shrug their shoulders, and you got one one camp talking about, uh, you know, children being inundated with vaccinations. You have another stuff with uh, antibiotics and, you know, deteriorating gut, uh, you know, uh, gut biota, and, you know, and then you have a whole bunch of people that just kind of shrug their shoulders and have uh, no idea and just like there's nothing we can do it's it's genetic it's this I mean it seems like I've I've never in my life seen anything uh, where you have you know one issue and so many people are pointing so many different fingers in so many different directions and I would agree with you and I couldn't begin to tell you the number of patients over the years that I've seen who came to me saying you know I went to the XYZ clinic and then the uh, ABC clinic and uh, they told me that there was really nothing that could be done. And, you know, we would then say, uh, you know, here's a list of 15 things that we'll start doing today. And make no promises that any of this is going to turn your situation around, uh, whether it's dementia or who knows what. Uh, but at least here's what we're going to do because here's some science behind it. For example, uh, using a ketogenic diet in patients with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease for which there is no treatment today. None whatsoever. Why in the world would I be recommending that ALS patients go on a ketogenic diet? I've done so because when you look at at least the laboratory model of ALS, the, the laboratory rodent that is able to get Lou Gehrig's disease, the lifespan of these laboratory animals was doubled when they put them on a ketogenic diet because the brain, the central nervous system, including the spinal cord, thrives in a ketone-rich environment. And I say to my patients, look, it hasn't been proven yet in humans in ALS, but it's had a dramatic effect in a human study on another degenerative condition called Parkinson's. Incredible. Small study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, no, in the Archives of Neurology, which is put out by the AMA, that showed huge uh, improvement in Parkinson's patients going on a ketogenic diet. And again, I will look eye to eye uh, to an ALS patient saying, uh, you know, they're, they're asking, they say, Doc, what do you got? What do you even think might work? And I, and I tell them, Man, I don't know, but here's what I think we should do based upon where we are today in terms of the science, along with, you know, other things. And these are people who've been given a death sentence. These are people like the child with the neuroblastoma that, that you were involved with. These are people like those who have glioblastoma, an aggressive malignancy of the brain in adults, that don't have anything else going for them and you say look uh, uh, I appreciate the fact that you've put your faith in my decisions I'm making these decisions based upon these studies here they are let's read them together and let's let's get up uh, let's step up to the plate you know a lot of games are won even when it's fourth and long so um, you know it, it's not over till it's over and I, I really 
you know, I want to stay in there with people as long as there's a chance. It's, it's kind of um, surprising a little bit that something as simple as just making some dietary changes seems to be met with so much uh, just angst and fury and anger and, you know, slamming doors. I mean, it didn't seem, it just, I mean, it just doesn't seem that improbable to me. It never did. I mean, it's like, you know, hey, um, I've seen guys, you know, make dietary modifications, whether it's eat less food and lose weight. I've seen people, you know, eat more protein, lift more weights and get bigger and stronger. I've seen people make body composition changes. I've seen performance changes. And it all really centers around, you know, sleep, food, and consistent activity. It kind of, basically baffles me a little bit that people would be so willing to, you know, argue it. I mean, I, uh, up the street from where I live, there's um, one of the oncologists is one of the top guys in Orange County, and um, he just lost his mother-in-law to cancer. And, you know, actually talking with him about weight and, and neuroblastoma, when I mentioned a ketogenic diet, he had no input and no thought on it. He's like, it, it was never taught to us, um, you know, in medical school and all the stuff and I, I have. Agree with that. I would agree that it wasn't taught to him in medical school or her. Uh, but that said, when was that? How many years ago was that? Let's, let's you know, stay on top of the literature. This is being explored and talked about in mainstream journals these days. And, you know, in terms of the response to the naysayers, I like to quote uh, Maurice uh, Maeterlinck, who was a Belgian uh, poet, Nobel Prize winner, and he said, at every crossway on the road that leads to the future, each progressive spirit is opposed by a thousand men appointed to defend the past. So <laughs> I, I actually ended my last book, uh, Rainmaker, with that quote. It was on the, the glass door of the office of my good friend Amar Bose, uh, who uh, built a company on uh, with these sound uh, reducing headphones and, and audio. And because he was, he pushed the envelope in his notion of of, of audio of uh, audio and the physics of audio and built all this incredible equipment and I love that quote because everybody wants to defend the status quo how it's been well we've never done it that way that's I love it when people that's the response you know even uh, with publishing books you know my, my publisher would say things like well normally a book like this dealing with health will come out in January and I would say things like that's exactly why I don't want to do it it's because it's always done that way we've got to break the mold uh, people are interested in health 365 days a year. So I think <laughs> really good to challenge these long-held beliefs that, yeah, carbohydrates, even if they're complex, may not be good for you. No, you shouldn't start your day with a 12-ounce glass of orange juice. No, really? Why? Because that's 9 teaspoons of pure sugar. That's 36 grams of carbohydrates. Orange juice, you're threatening orange juice. You know, you must be some kind of radical. No, I'm simply telling you what's in that liquid that you're drinking that has the same amount of sugar as a can of Coke. So well, people the, have to be educated. Uh, the Anybody listening to this that actually has kids uh, will definitely agree with Doc. I mean, I, I know that the difference between my children in terms of listening, behavior, and just general being around them when they consume uh, sugar is a complete nightmare. Like, I remember, you know, we you know, went out on Halloween, we're trying to like, you know, pull away all the sugar and we actually gave our kids a couple pieces of candy after I went through them and watching them, you know, not only have emotional breakdowns and this, I mean, seeing how powerful that stuff is, I'm like, dude, uh, we don't give our kids that stuff for the mere fact that one, they don't listen and two, they're just not emotionally able to deal with that and it's just, it's kind of crippling. I know it sounds terrible to deny well, your kids Halloween candy, okay. but you know what? 
It's, you can it's, kids up with sugar. That's totally fine, but just make sure that you've got the riddle in handy because yeah. you're going to need something. I but, mean, but, I mean, that's that's really what we've become, and I don't even know why we call you know in medicine it's become modern pharmacology. It's like, oh, instead of making a dietary change, and we run into this all the time, people would much rather make uh, a, you know, take a pill, whether it be like, hey, my kid has behavioral problems, I'm probably pumping them full of crap and sugar, so let's give them a Ritalin pill, which is going to make them a zombie, or, you know what, hey, uh, instead of, you know, getting up and doing 20 minutes of aerobic exercise and maybe making some diet modifications and some lifestyle changes, just give me a pill so I don't have to deal with it, and it's become this, you know, this opportunity, and you know what, for the most part, that's what become, I don't even know why they call it medicine anymore, it seems like just like, you know, the same thing from a vending machine. Just enter your problem, and it'll spit you out a pill, which is basically the equivalent of going to the doctor these days. Yeah, reflexive medicine. I did, uh, I did an interview yesterday with Fox News, uh, or maybe day before, yeah, day before yesterday, and it was on this idea of can we improve a kid's performance shy of giving them drugs uh, with ADHD by changing their diet and. You know, I'm grateful that the, the reporter came and, and wanted to do the story, but why would you not at least give it some consideration prior to putting your child on an amphetamine? The long-term risk for the developing brain have never been studied with respect to that drug. So, uh, you know, when you say it like that, people say, oh, yeah, I guess that does make sense. But by and large, you know, two-thirds of the 6.5 million American children who've been labeled with this diagnosis are on medication. So if you're in the biz of selling these drugs, you're as happy as a clam at high tide. But uh, we don't know what that's doing to the developing brain. And uh, it's, you know, basically these are mostly amphetamine-based. We don't know what that does to the brain. It's a scary proposition. Doc, the, uh, my first experience at all with uh, you know Adderall or Ritalin or any of that was, I think it was my third or fourth year in the NFL, I uh, took a helmet to the shin and broke my leg, and they ended up casting me for about five days, and I played about three, three and a half weeks later. And I remember, you know, I had a lot of pain because, you know, you break your fibula clean in half, but it's only a 12% weight-bearing bone, so technically you don't need that bone to play football. And so as I go out to play, I was having pain, and so the doctors were offering me painkillers. And I remember I felt kind of looped out. I was like, man, I feel real tired. You know, I just don't want to feel a little bit of groggy. So I'm not giving you too much. And they wrote me a prescription for Adderall. And the doctor's like, here, take this. It'll balance you out. And I remember kind of uh, laughing a little bit at the time and being like, so you guys basically gave me too many painkillers, and now you're going to try to give me an upper. I'm like, all right, this is the game we're playing in. And, you know, it, that, that was just, you know, kind of one of my little entrees into this thing where I realized that if you're not looking out for yourself, nobody else is. And uh, I, I looked at it like, hey, if I got to take painkillers to go play this, I'm just going to go out and, you know, for some reason I got a pretty good pain threshold where I was able to just go out and suffer through it. But, uh, you know, that's really, I think, what, um, you know, a lot of the guys came out in the NFL and talked about that, you know, that's the sport of, you know, football and making money. And it's like, hey, you know, if we got to, you know, pump a guy full of some stuff to get him through, we're going to do that, which has just kind of been standard operating procedure I, I just, for the most uh, of everybody. You know, it, it's a great story. I, I'll tell you a, a story that's a, a certainly far bigger implication, and that is that a, a large study in Finland that you can read about on WebMD in March of this year uh, showed that the risk of developing type 2 diabetes in women who are taking the most widely prescribed drug on the planet, which are drugs to reduce cholesterol, the risk for them getting type 2 diabetes is increased 50%. So what happens then? Just like you said, 
they'll need a diabetes pill to control their diabetes now that they've taken the cholesterol drug. So one hand feeds the other as it relates to these drugs. It's real, really pretty sad. Now, I don't know if you ever heard that statistic, and probably you haven't. Well, you're pretty well read, so you probably have, but most people have never heard about that. But it was published in an extremely well-respected journal and you know, showing that 50% increased risk of, of diabetes in women taking statin drugs. That, you know, there are 29 million Americans right now with diabetes, and it doubles your risk for Alzheimer's. Taking the statin drug increases your risk for diabetes by 50%. And therefore, 50% of women who take a statin drug will double their risk for Alzheimer's, for which there is no treatment. Oh, it's really quite something. Well, I guess we solved the world's problems. Well, you we know did, what? We uh, did it just over an hour. I feel good about this. Yeah, just chuck DHA. We do yeah, like the candles, and you know, but what I think we do have to curse the darkness a little bit as well. I think we've got to point out what's really messed up around and let people hear things like this uh, study on, on cholesterol-lowering drugs, for example. You've got to know that stuff. People have to be educated consumers and not just go to the doctor and act like automatons and do exactly as they're told in being the, quote, good patient. Uh, you know, you want to you wanna question things. And Lord knows, with the availability of information on the Internet that we have today, uh, you know, you don't buy... Um, you don't buy anything that you don't look at uh, what people, you know, what are the comments, what was the Amazon rating. Everybody's looking at that. You've got to do the same thing with healthcare. You've got to be a discerning consumer. Well, I mean, that's, I think we run into this thing, and, you know, and please don't take any offense to this as a doctor, but most of the doctors that we run into, uh, you know, there's a bit of arrogance that, hey, I've gone to med school, I'm the expert, you're the layman, you don't understand, uh, to the point where, I mean, even in my my mom actually went to the doctor for an injured knee, and the doctor wanted to do a pretty extensive surgery. And we, I had used uh, Bionic Care, which was uh, a machine where it drives low level current and can basically regenerate a knee. And I used it with great results for my own knee. And I told my mom, I'm like, dude, don't do that. Use the Bionic Care. And so she goes in and asks the doctor for a prescription for Bionic Care. Which at point he tells her, well, if you're not going to listen to me and you know more than me, then why are you here? And fires her as a patient. So we go get her another doctor. And she ends up getting the body care and going to it, and now her knee is fine. So I think we get into this situation where you know we've you know not only the arrogance, but you know there's there's bills to pay. I got a big practice, and it just seems easier just to kind of offer some opportunities like that. So I don't know. I I, I think the pro the bigger problem lies in you know uh, you know standardized healthcare and really the the model that's been set up in this country that it's not necessarily. Uh, profitable to heal people and to get them better, or more importantly, pre put preventative medicine out there as much as it is to just treat the symptoms and hope for the, you know, and, and hope that all of a sudden more and more stuff happens so I can keep making more and more money on the pharmaceuticals. Which I would is agree. You know, we uh, you look at things like uh, Obamacare and the, the healthcare initiative, etc. You know, they call these things uh, healthcare plans, and they have nothing to do with health. You don't use your insurance when you're healthy. You just want to have something in case I get sick because Lord knows the, uh, the bills are going to be so high and I don't want to have that happen. I don't want to be a burden on society, so luckily I have insurance. But if you keep people healthy in the first place, then you're not going to have those expenses related to, to illness. So uh, I, I sure agree with you that um, the Neijing, the Yellow Emperor, 4th century B.C., stated that prevention is the ultimate principle of wisdom. 
to cure a disease uh, to cure a disease after it is manifest is like digging a well when one feels thirsty or forging weapons when the war has already begun so again you know we are forging these weapons for for these issues uh, these you know we're building these wonderful new products and waging the war on cancer and the war on this and that whereas we should nourish and and keep people healthy uh, and not going to you know be preemptive here you know John Kennedy in his inaugural address said that the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining that's that was the statement but obviously you don't want to be fixing the roof once it's already started to rain Doc, with these changes to dietary recommendations through the you know USDA coming out and saying you know hey we need to offer more fat or you have you know different things talking about that dietary cholesterol is no longer related to you know uh, cholesterol within the body. Uh, what does that do to the statin market? I mean, I I've kind of always been a little bit confused that you know they're offering statins to try to lower people's cholesterol and make some modifications and do this and this, but now that we know that you know that cholesterol is not really the you know, it's kind of a red herring in a lot of ways for what we've been taught. How does that affect us? Or more importantly, how does that affect probably the most prescribed drug on the market? I, I think that um, those drugs are, are they're alive and well. I mean, uh, you know, you can buy statin drugs uh, around the world even now without a prescription. So, you know, by and large, uh, the public is still under this misguided uh, impression that cholesterol is a bad thing that cholesterol will clog your arteries and cause terrible things to happen. And nothing is further from the truth. Cholesterol is a brain antioxidant. It's the substance that your body needs, is desperate for, to make testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, cortisol, and even vitamin D. So we've always lived wonderfully with cholesterol, uh, and suddenly uh, we've declared war on this. The science that underlies the link of cholesterol to heart disease basically doesn't even exist. It's not cholesterol that's the issue. It's the oxidized damaged form of LDL and that happens when blood sugar is elevated. So lowering cholesterol, you know, 50% of people who have a heart attack have a normal cholesterol, thank you very much. And yet, you know, it's looked upon, it's so vilified with this notion that cholesterol clogs the arteries. When you Look under the microscope at an artery in somebody who's had a heart attack, and you look at their coronary artery, the part that they take out, what do you find? You find a bunch of inflammatory white blood cells, and you find cholesterol. You find more cholesterol, in fact, uh, than you would find in a non-involved place. And the reason that's happening is cholesterol is brought to the area to calm the inflammation. It's like blaming the, the, the firemen for the fire, because they're on the scene. So it, it's, it's, a, it's such a ridiculous uh, notion. You know, when you the lowest cholesterols are associated with the highest risk of dementia, of depression, of uh, schizophrenia, of suicide, uh, and brain hemorrhage. So we need to talk about that. And impotence, Doc. Uh, the lowest, you know, uh, erectile dysfunction is directly related. So, I mean, I know that the, uh, it was the highest rate of suicide in the world were southern India with also the highest rate of vegetarians. And I remember I made that claim a couple of years ago, and people tried to come out of the woodwork at me. And I'm like, hey, um, you know, we know that you know low uh, low blood serum cholesterol levels are directly related to a bunch of stuff you don't want, everything from not being able to hoist your sail to um, you know uh, a host of other mental issues. So it, it just it just I like yeah. that. 
I mean, but uh, you know, and uh, you know, and uh, the other one, I mean, you know, you talk about just a basic conversion, the building block of being able to, you know, have testosterone. So I mean, in a environment that we're in, where we're looking to strength train performance and increase muscle mass and really ramp up, I mean, I, I tell people the last thing you want is to have low blood serum cholesterol. If that's the case, and you need to go check out somebody else. Yeah, I read a report not long ago that said, you know, now that the science is has uh, has become evident. Uh, we may be um, actually at a place where we're going to be looking at cholesterol raising drugs in the future. Can you imagine? If if that comes out, then I'll know that the world is at end. That they're like, ooh, we messed that one up. Now we got to raise everybody's. Well, you know, it's just a question of of, of embracing a different paradigm. Like I when I, in my lectures, I often start off by saying, you know, I really want to look at at things in a different way. I said, you know. Probably everybody in the audience would agree with the statement that you know you wake up in the morning and the sun rises in the east. In the middle of the day, it's it's the sun has moved to the top of the sky, and then the end of the day, the sun sets in the west. Uh, and I say, you know, matter of fact, it's not true. The sun isn't moving. The Earth is spinning. So you know they they finally get that. Oh, I'm looking at this in a different way, and that seems to make sense. That's all I'm asking is just consider the possibility. That what you're being told may not be accurate, and and the gold standard remains peer-reviewed science. So that when I say, for example, that uh, statin drugs increase uh, the risk of of uh, diabetes in men, uh, I will tell you that that is a study published in Diabetologia in March of rather in May of of this year, and it's a study that involved 8,749 non-diabetic men who took statin drugs. Uh, for an average of six years, and that study is there. You can Google it and read it. That's what the science is telling us. A very long and robust study uh, that no one's talking about. Think about it. No, it's um, no, Doc. Hey, uh, I, I think we definitely hit it out of the park and really, you know, covered everything I was excited about. Is there anything that you want to, you know, uh, put out? Like, where can people find you? And more importantly, you have any new books or anything that we have to put on our, you know, must-read list? Oh, there are a lot of good books out right now, that's for sure. Uh, people can follow me on Facebook at David Perlmutter, MD. And I've been doing actually a lot of live interviews on Facebook. I did one last night with the Dr. Christine Northrup. So I'm available there. My website is drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. Uh, I blog uh, almost every day. And, you know, a lot of these studies that I talk about, uh, they're listed in the science section of, of my website. So there's a really robust... Uh, level of of information there. Uh, my two newest books are both Grain Brain that we talked about and then Brain Maker that deals with gut bacteria. But hey, that was a great interview and great conversation. I sure enjoyed it. Doc, I um, you know, if we ever can get an opportunity to get in front of the NFL or at least get in front of the NFL PA, uh, you know, geez, I'd love to link up on you on that and be able to try to offer some stuff out to some guys. I mean, I talked to Rob pretty extensively offline about being able to put together some protocols to, you know, help people and more importantly help a lot of these ex-players because I think there's just so much information and there's so much, you know, to put it bluntly, just bullshit out there that isn't working that um, I just think that we need to be uh, a beacon of light and more importantly for better opportunity. Well, I'm there, and, um, you know, uh, that's what it's all about. The word doctor in Latin doesn't mean healer. It, mean, it means teacher. And in that regard, you're doing a lot of doctor work here by teaching people this really wonderful information, and I praise you for it. Thank you, Doc. Yes, the feeling's very mutual. Great. 
Well, um, all the best, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Doc. Okay, bye, everyone. Thanks a lot, Doc. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. All right, people, let's break a mental sweat. As much as we love to work on that bikini body, I hope everyone is feeling as inspired as I am to eat my way towards a sexier lady brain. Follow Dr. Pearl Mutter on Facebook under his name or head directly to his website, www.drperlmutter.com, to see his blog and purchase any of his publications, including his very own cookbook. And if you need a little fun thing to get you through the next five minutes, try to say Pearl Mutter five times fast. I dare you. It's impossible. Until next time, bye!